I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you wanna listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, Follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear. Go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there and enjoy the new episodes of And The Writer Is. This week's episode is sponsored by BMI. At BMI, music moves their world just like it moves mine. BMI is my performing rights organization. They're the bridge between people who create music, like me, and the businesses that bring it to the public. They make sure I get paid when my music is streamed on apps or shows, played on radio, at live shows, or in bars, gyms, basically anywhere where music is played. And they do this for over 900,000 songwriters, composers, and music publishers with more than 14 million songs across genres. But it's more than that. They help us navigate the music industry. They create opportunities for aspiring writers and composers through stages at festivals, song camps, and workshops. And they connect us with the right people. They're also on Capitol Hill fighting for copyright protection and fair royalties. And they work hard to ensure the future of music. They have my back and they'll have yours. Learn more at BMI.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. Built for musicians, by musicians. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a professional website and EPK for your music. Whether you're looking to book more gigs or need an affordable solution to manage your direct-to-fan sales and mailing list, you can use Banzoogle's simple tools to design a website and store that both you and your fans will love. Go to banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code ATWI to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's ATWI to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. 
Welcome to And the Writer Is. Your voice changed just it now did. from our normal. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to get real weird right now. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's acclaimed songwriter, celebrated producer, renowned frontwoman, is not just known for creating a catalog of evergreens, but is a legendary <laughs> philanthropic activist. She's been collecting nominations and critical love for her entire career, including a song of the the year nom for a rare 100% composition called Beautiful, performed by the Christina Aguilera. In addition, she's helped launch a number of divas' discographies before being inducted in the Songwriter Hall of Fame in 2015. I mean, she's the only woman in 16 years to be nominated for Producer of the Year by the Grammys. When she's not in the studio, this former base stater is an LBGTQ icon, and now she's here with me. And the writer is the legend, Linda Perry. How's that? That's pretty good, right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know what? I, I didn't know um, that someone from Massachusetts is called a base stater. No idea either. So I was like, "What is he saying?" I looked. I looked it up, and I was like, <laughs> "What do you call somebody from Massachusetts?" And it's and and the Massachusetts, uh, whatever the official Massachusettsian is a Bay Stater. Right. Well, the the funny part of that is I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, but I was raised in San Diego, so I'm really oh. from California because I was only one years old, and we moved to California at one. Why did the Why did your family move? Um, because my father was an engineer and he worked for the government and he worked for, at the time it was called General Dynamics that turned into Mac and, um, Macintosh. But, um, yeah, it was in San Diego and San Diego is a very, you know, army base town driven, whatever. Yeah. Did you have siblings? Yeah. I have five brothers and one sister. So all of you guys moved to San Diego? No, um... Three of my brothers and my sister moved, and then there's two brothers that stayed in Brazil. Wait, stayed in Brazil, so... I'm My mother's Brazilian. Okay. So my father's from Portugal, and my mother's from Sao Paulo. Do you and speak Portuguese? No, my father would um, not allow it because back in the 60s, it was considered really unhip and not good to be an immigrant, and so... Um, my father wouldn't allow my mother to speak Portuguese and and it made it very, very complicated because we didn't speak Portuguese and my mother didn't speak English. So there's, I have a weird, sometimes I say weird things because I have a, you know, there'll be a weird accent in my dialogue sometimes because I say things that wrong because my mom would say, you know, refrigerator was hefrigier door, you know, or, you know, like mo- motor, I can say I have a hard time saying motorcycle. I say motorcycle. Wow, that's really <laughs> funny. Did they listen to, you know, Latin music? Were they mostly listening to me or were they trying to also assimilate their music st- tastes? My Did they even listen to music? Yeah, my father, he, my father was a musician. He was, um, but he never shared his, you know, music or his what did he? What did he play? He was a guitar, he played piano, guitar. He's actually, I'm certain he was probably really good, but sometimes if we 
um, were in a store and there was like, you know, piano, whatever. He would sit down at the piano and he'd be very jazz chords, you know, but he was in a a um, country western um, Portuguese band in Brazil. What, what is yeah. that? No idea. I just saw the pictures and it was like, it looks like a Portuguese western country band. Um, you know, there's no tapings of it because it was back in what, 40s or something like that. Um, and um, he loved listening to jazz and he loved Frank Sinatra. It was like, I mean, yeah, that was it for him. Um, and then my fa- my mother loved, um, you know, Joe Brato and Sergio and, um, I mean, there were so many things I didn't know what it was. Um, uh, did they that intru- she listened to? Did Car- they- she loved Carmen Miranda and what? How how young were you then when you started picking up the instruments? Well, I really gravitated towards. Um, musicals, for some reason. Like, well, I remember well, my, my mother... Well, musicals meaning, like, you know, some, a lot of the Disney, like Jungle Book or Sound of Music or Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, um, stuff like that. Like, I really... Willy Wonka, I loved, um, was obsessed with it. W- Willy Wonka and um, Jungle Book. I was really obsessed with that those albums and and I remember my mother came home and she brought everybody an album and my brother got Jungle Book and I got Cinderella and I'm just so not Cinderella <laughs> obviously and I was so upset and I would run into my brother's room and take his and so and he would come back and take it back so one day and he wasn't even listening to it. So one day I just got smart and I'm like, I took the record out. I put the Cinderella in his Jungle Book and took the Jungle Book and put it in my Cinderella. And then he never, it was proof that he never listened. He was just being a dickhead. So I just would sit in my little room with my record player and over and over. And then I discovered the Carpenters. And then it's like my world, like when I heard Karen's voice, because I was a very dark kid. I didn't have the greatest upbringing and but I would listen to Karen's voice and I would just be I have a very interesting video that I just did of my son but he looked I'm certain exactly the way I looked when I was listening I'll tell you that story in a second but so I would hear this voice singing these really cheesy songs but there was something about her tone and the desperation and the the de- the darkness in it that I just related to like I felt like that was if I had a voice that's what it, what it would sound like you know yeah. and and then um I just got obsessed with her and then that turned into the Beach Boys which then but never bought my own the Carpenters is the only album I actually actively pursued and asked my mother to buy me She's such a, she was such an interesting character for so many reasons, but I recently saw a video where she was playing drums. I didn't oh. realize that she was the drummer. Oh yeah. I always oh assume, you know, you the assumption for any musician, it's so rare that the voice that you're hearing on the album is the drummer. I mean, you can think of the five of them in you know, pop history that really yeah. succeeded that were drummer Front people, but she's amazing. No, the the thing about Karen, which is extremely uh, uh, underrated, people don't understand about her, is that she was very, 
she was a jazz player. Her brother, <clears throat> Richard, you know, he was an accomplished pianist and he did all these really great arrangements. And then he would get her to come up and just sing some songs and she would be behind the scenes, whatever, nothing major. <clears throat> but she wanted to be a part of the band and he wanted to start a trio. So he got a bass player and then she didn't know how to play drums, but she learned and she started studying jazz and she became an incredible yeah. jazz player. And so then one day they had a song and they weren't digging Richard. And so Richard threw it over to her and she started singing and playing drums. And then that's how they got their record deal is huh. when she showed up and started singing. So the thing about Karen is that she wanted to be a drummer. She didn't want to be a, a front person. So she was the first, first of all, first woman, you know, on drums that is in a pop band. And then the first female fronted artist in a pop band that was playing drums. Amazing. You know, and so, it, and then that voice was so great, but she got pulled off of it. The label pulled her off because they wanted her to be more traditional and be in front. And that basically was the beginning of her downfall is because she was very uncomfortable being a front person. Oh, she wow, liked right. being behind the drums. It was super fun for her. Like she, you know, like you could see when she played drums, she glowed, you know. And it's But I saw that episode. Like that was a live moment on TV you know, where you saw the Carpenters on TV and you're seeing her on drums because I only heard the record at the time. And then, you know, then she comes on, I think it was, you know, Ed Sullivan or something or Dick Cavett, and you see her playing drums and singing. I was like, holy fucking shit. It like changed everything for me. So anyways, Karen Carpenter, the Carpenters. And then, you know, and, and and then to actually hear someone's voice go, like, imagine Debbie Boone, imagine somebody else going, why do birds all suddenly appear? You know, it'd be like, you'd be like going, who fucking cares? But Karen, you know, why do birds suddenly appear? You know, all of a sudden you're like, why do birds suddenly appear it's like it turned it into like a very interesting question so that was the greatest thing about the carpenters is how they took these cheesy songs and really and richard's arrangements were phenomenal and you were you were saying that it's sorry I'm you, going on no no, no it's good no but you were saying that, I love them that, so much. that in your that you were having a rough childhood and that it was listening to that kind of music that helped you kind of out of that would you say that i mean no not Nothing helps you out of music is not going to help you out of a situation. What's what was the rough childhood? I mean, that's just um, you know, just not having the best parenting, and you know, the the it really doesn't matter. Um, yeah. It's just you know, struggle. Yeah, I struggled a lot. When and, it, listening to that kind, of, listening to any music, were you emulating those kinds of? songwriters were you emulating those kinds of producers what gets you from listening to you know you're listening to the carpenters or jungle book what what makes you sit at a piano or guitar and actually write something or were you writing poetry or when when did you start actually starting to create your own art 
Well, I feel I honestly was creating it from day one. I just, it was maybe not musical. It was verbally, it was by the way I dressed, by the way, you know, I would act. Um, you know, like the rock star showed up before the music did. <laughs> and yeah. um, so I had this whole thing always. I always introduced myself as Linda Perry like when I was like five, six years old, like people would laugh at me and like, like, you know, like think I was weird, you know? And I'm like, hi, I'm Linda Perry, you know? And, um, and so if there were an instrument, I remember my, my, my brother had a guitar and I would just go and pluck on the strings. And for some reason, everybody always was just not letting me play. And so, I got, when I was in school and seven, seven years old, I wanted to play violin. I thought that was like the most interesting, I loved strings. And my mom said it was too, I, we were, we didn't have a lot of money so we couldn't afford things. So my mom had to invent reasons why we couldn't have a violin. So she would say, oh, it's a masculine instrument. I'm like, violin? You know, but at the time it was back in the sixties, you'd see early seventies men playing violin. So my mom just, okay, it's a masculine, you don't want to do that. And then I wanted to play piano. And then I came home one day and I'm convinced now that it was some random person my mom brought in, but I came home and you know, to be piano, you have to get a piano and we couldn't afford a piano. So I come home, this man is standing there, he's like and my mom's like, Linda, this is, uh, you know, Jose, the whatever, and he's a piano teacher. And it'd be like really random, you know? And he's like, let me see your hands. And I'd show my hands. And I'm seven, eight years old. <laughs> They're going to be tiny. And he's like, oh, you'll never be able to play piano. Your hands are too small. And I was like, oh, well, that's a bummer. Just you know? more, and more people saying you can't do exactly. this either. <laughs> so it was very strange. And then one day I had a fit, you know, and said, I just want a guitar. I just want something to play. And then my mom went down to Tijuana and bought an acoustic guitar for me, like a beat up, broken, you know, probably cost five bucks, whatever guitar. And brought it back and um, gave it to me for Christmas. And then I just started, before I could do this hand, I just started making up musical things with just the the, the strings. And, um, and then that started advancing into me figuring out, you know, I just listen. Were you so, trying to figure out other people's songs at that point? Or you just, oh, no. I just need to figure out how to make... I was this, just making, This sounds good if I go here, and then this sounds good if I go there. Exactly. And, yeah. I just started doing my own thing. And then, yeah. and not until later, like I got in, I think it was in sixth grade, I was in a, I joined a music class and I didn't have a guitar. So mind you, I don't, still, I don't really have a guitar. I have this like thing that now yeah. in sixth grade, you're just not going to use. It's not usable. But I got into this music class and I just kind of kept oh, I'm going to get a guitar, I'm going to get a guitar, you know, and I would just use the ones if someone wasn't playing theirs, I'd like, can I borrow your guitar? So it was then I just started doing that because in that class, I'm, my brain doesn't work. I'm not mathematical. I'm, I don't, my brain doesn't take in information that way. So I can't learn, you know, I don't see things and learn. Like I could never learn music theory. It's just not going to happen. I have to figure things out. So... 
the assignments were, you know, writing music and learning songs by the learning the chords. And so I would just, you know, learn the song by ear. I would listen to it over and over and I would just learn it by that. And so by the end of the class, you're supposed to play the song. So I play the song and I wouldn't play it exact. I would play it a different way, but it'd still sound great. And the teacher, you know, the first time I did that, the teacher came up to me. He's like, how you, how did you do that? I'm like, I just learned it. He's like, you didn't, you don't know what you're doing, do you? And I'm like, no. And then there was this one guy sitting there, really nice guy. And he's like, well, where's your guitar? You know, it's been like a week now. You said you're going to have a guitar. I'm like, I don't have one. And then this kid said, you know what? I have an extra guitar. I'm going to bring it for you. And I was just like, thank you. And then I was able to be in the class. And then the teacher understood that I couldn't, you know, read music and I just wasn't going to be that way. So my assignments every, at the end of the week were just come out. I get to go in my own private room and I could come out and just play the song at the end of the day. Yeah. And then that's Do you know who the kid was that gave you the I can't remember. No, I remember his face. I mean, I remember exactly what he looks like. Yeah. But um, how soon to when you go in that room and and you have to learn the song? Did you say, "Well, I'm gonna just make my own"? Song. Oh yeah, the whole time, the whole <laughs> time, like, I'd come be just back. Playing... And he's like, "Come and learn this song." You're like, yeah, sure, that no problem. Took, you come that, back at a different yeah, song. That and, was so. That yeah. learning the song was easy. Yeah. Uh, but I would go in there and I just. That's how I really learned how to play guitar. Did you did you sing? Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously, we know later you sang. But when did you start actually? You're playing guitar and then you're singing along, making up melodies as you go. Are you emulating anybody? Do you think you sounded like something? Oh no, I um, I had a very strange voice, but I so my brother was in this band called Chaos. They were like a you know '80s metal band in San Diego. And he was so ultra cool with the leather and the hair and the chicks loved him. And and um, and now I believe I'm in seventh grade. And so I would idolize him. I'm like, oh, my God, I got to figure out how to do that. So they would rehearse in our, our garage. So I would listen and he would come out, don't you fucking touch my guitar. And I'm like... Touch your guitar, and as soon as they leave, is it the same? Is it the same brother with the Jungle Book? Yes, (laughs) (laughs) it's the exact same brother. You guys have this like long relationship. Still, like I don't talk to anybody else in my family except for my brother John. (laughs) It's the exact same brother, and um, and and so I went in there, and and I would just try to mimic what I heard, and he was a lead guitar player, so I just started playing like leads whatever the hell that was you know and put the you know the guitar loud and and then i started writing songs then songs started showing up and i remember writing this song called pity girls and it was about a girl um that was suicidal and it was a very dark song and then we had a talent contest and i asked my brother i said will your band play with me at this talent show and he is like, yeah. And so so we also learned, do you want to touch me, you know, by Joan Jett, you know, or, you know, Joan Jett's version of do you want to touch me. And um, so, I mean, I got my brother's metal band and me, I'm just like, I'm always fucked Wait, up. Are looking, you in you know? eighth, eighth grade or something? Seventh, yeah, or seventh I'm seventh grade. In seventh this, grade? Right. 
And and here I'm playing this song. How does it go? You know, I I it I just remember like do 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 do. When I was just a poor little girl, do 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 do. I and I can't remember. And you know, something messed up my whole world. It's all like really like very monotone, drony. And I just remember seeing everybody just going, you know, but every, but afterwards it was like, it just spawned. Yeah. I mean, I just, I spun out of control after that. I was like, okay. And then I just stopped going to class. I stopped doing things, you know, anything to do with school. I dropped out in eighth grade and everybody was like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I'm going to be a rock star, you know? That's what I'm going to be. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. That's what I'm going to do. And I, I'm not going to. Why were this you stuff. writing concepts about you know about a suicidal girl in seventh grade? Is there as your first song is so deep? Where does that Where does that come from? Where does that story come from? Well, I think you know, like I said, I had a lot of you know when. However, this is going to sound beyond the fact that, you know, I struggled with my family. There, there's a lot of, it was just, you know, my, my family's very fucked up, you know. And, and I'm not saying in an abusive way, there's just a lot of skeletons. My mom was very, she, it, it's, it's very complex. She just, she di- didn't get it. I don't, something happened to her and it just translated into parenting, you mm. know. My father was an alcoholic and never was around. And my family, you know, I have these two brothers that we don't even really know that came from Brazil, you know, or actually one that showed up. Um, we're very disjointed. There's no aunts, there's no uncles, there's no grandparents, there's nobody but us, you know. And then I have a very manipulating mom and that's very... Mm, physically and um, emotionally and mentally abusive, mm. you know. So forget about that. That's the easy piece. The hard piece was I didn't feel like I belonged in this time. I was born in 1965, you know. And sure, that sounds great. But 19, by 1970, 72, you know, I, and very early in my age, I just felt like I, I'm not supposed to be here. Like something, like I couldn't connect to people. And then when I got into junior high school, I still couldn't connect. I couldn't connect on a, like it sounded like people just weren't thinking the way I was thinking. And I felt very, either very behind or very ahead, but I was not present and in the moment. What do you think? Now, are you are you currently in the right time, or do you still feel no, like I you're, still don't you, think I'm supposed. Yeah. I feel like I was supposed to be way earlier. Like I feel like I was probably should have been born in the late 40s, early 50s. My career should have been. I should have been in my height of my career in late 60s and 70s. Mm. That's how I truly feel. Like I feel like I showed up too late. So now. I'm just, you know, I'm, I navigate every day. Like it's like I'm constantly, you know, I think that's why I'm just always in the moment. Like I'm a very ad lib person. I fly by the seat of my pants. I'm act only on my instinct. I never act from my, my, what my brain thinks. 
Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, but it's the only way I know how to well, it's worked behave. To, I mean, you know, you made some pretty strong choices. If in eighth grade you're you're you decide you're going to drop out of school, that's a pretty well, yeah. strong instinctual I mean, choice to exactly. say I'm going to be a rock star. When well, other people kind of laugh be at it, famous then, or some sort. I just knew people are going to know me. Did you want to do other things in music when you say famous? Did, did you want to do? I mean, you're in. No, I, I LA adjacent. Yeah. So like you're not far, far you know you're not too far from where a lot of people become famous. Yeah, well, I feel like um it's really I mean it, like when I talk about it, I feel like I can't really I I still to this day at 54 can't articulate, you know, the the wording of how I feel. So I think like when you say music didn't get me out of anything. Yeah. I'm still in it. Yeah. And I'm very I write and play every single day. It's all music is doing is helping me tell my story very and cool. it's helping me articulate how I feel and it's more for me. It's not for you. It's not for I didn't mean to be a songwriter for people. I didn't mean to do anything. I just never have known quite sure where this street's going to go, but something's telling me to go down it. So I'm going to do that. And then somewhere along the line in <clears throat> Four Non Blondes, that to me, I don't know if that was the right choice to be in that band. Really? Yeah, I don't. This week's episode is sponsored by BMI. Full disclosure, Joe and I are both BMI songwriters. So we didn't write this, but we believe it. BMI, we celebrate your talent, value your music, and champion your rights. To all our songwriters and composers, your passion is ours. BMI, music moves our world. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. Built for musicians by musicians, you can use Banzoogle's tools to easily design a website, an EPK, sell your music, merch directly to your fans, and it's commission-free. Banzoogle also recently added a crowdfunding feature, which lets you crowdfund your next project commission-free. So think about it. Your fans want to help fund your album. You don't need a record deal anymore. You can just use Banzoogle. So go to Banzoogle.com, try free for 30 days. Be sure to use the promo code ATWI, and you'll get 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's ATWI at Banzoogle.com for 15% off of any subscription. This is, you know, not to have memorized your discography in the last 24 hours and looking at it, but you start Four Non Blondes, you join it in 89 or something. Is that right? Does that sound right? 90? Something Something like that, yeah. You know, that's... It's really like what a time to join to be in a band where it's the end of chaos, you know that style of of that kind of rock band, and yet it's like the the kind of music it feels like maybe I glorify it because I was that's such um, influential music for my generation, but it feels like that's when people were allowed to write whatever kind of music. And it didn't have to be glam metal, and it didn't have to be electro. It felt like it felt like you were allowed to be. Four Non Blondes is so unique. What a time to be in a band, no? Yeah, maybe so. I mean, I think that 
if you really think about it, or if I think about it, it's like um, what's up is what got through, not the band. If you really think about mm. it, nobody knows Four Non Blondes. They knew the song. Four Non Blondes was an interesting, stupid name, you know, that caught on to people, but, you know, by far was not by my design. Um, and I what had... What wasn't by... Your I just thin- hated that name. I just It was so annoying to me. Who were the other members? Um, Krista Hillhouse. At the time, it was Krista Hillhouse, Shauna Hall, and Wanda Day, and they were in a band. And I had moved to San Francisco... Um, from San Diego and I was like um, once I got there I just started I wrote a bunch of songs and I just started showing up at clubs and when I saw they were open I'd bring my guitar and I'd just show up and i go can I open up you know and it's so green I was just like can I open up a show tonight? And they were like, and who are you? I'm like Linda Perry you know and you know again thinking of, you don't know me and um, <laughs> they would laugh at me, and I mean, I would badger them all the time. And there's this one guy specifically named Mark at the night break up on Hate Street, and I would go there and drink beers and play pool. And I'm like, come on! And I didn't have money. I don't demo. I don't know, you know. And he was like, and but he would never ask me to play for him, which was weird. So, and I never even thought about actually playing to him, just him. And so one day. And I just left my number with him. And one day he calls me up and it's reluctant. He was like, "Um, is Linda there? I'm like, this is Linda. And he's all, "Um, hi, this is Mark at the night break. I'm like, hey. And um, he's like, so um, I need a a support tonight because the supporting act uh, couldn't make it. And you just play acoustic, right? And, And that's it. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, I'll be there. And so I literally just hightailed it over there. I got up on stage, played one song and broke a string. Had no other string, but everybody freaked out. And then I got a write-up <laughs> the SF Weekly <laughs> about this girl. Like literally, you know, SF Weekly, it's like, that's the jam, right? And there's this write-up about this girl that showed up, you know, and got up on stage, played this incredible song, had this incredible voice, and she broke a string. And then I feel like, I, she, poof, she was gone. And But he found, you know, he, he knew who, my name. But then I just started getting all these gigs from that, you know, and started opening up for Deborah Iel and Exine Cervenka, Sam Phillips, and um, Bob Mole, you know, just all these, like, really cool... Just me and a guitar. And then Four Non Blondes, the band, well, they were called something else before, and they found me, and they are like, hey, do you want to join our band? I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm doing fine. I'm and, Linda Perry. You know, I'm Linda Perry. I'm <laughs> Don't obviously you know me? doing good. Yeah, exactly. you know? and, so, yeah. and so then I went to go see them. I'm like, oh, yeah, you guys are pretty good. So I joined their band for fun. I would just drink and sing their songs. Never brought my songs in. And then one day, and I just had fun, um, and then one day I saw a video of us, somebody videotaped it, and I'm like, oh, we're actually kind of good. And so then I brought my songs into the equation. How soon after that did you show them What's Up? Because that's obviously, I mean, that's a... Well, What's Up, yeah, I wrote, and 
and I wouldn't put it in the band. And then when I decided to go into the band, I brought it to rehearsal, and um, the Krista, the bass player, she was like, oh, my God, what is that song? It's amazing. And I'm like, um, I don't know, I just wrote it. And, and so I brought it to rehearsal, and then we were together probably a year and a half before we got signed. Like, we didn't go anywhere. You know, Did it you was, record a demo of that song? Or then, that... Yeah, so then we start playing it, my songs, and then once we start playing my songs, the audience started showing. It was like, I mean, lines yeah. around the block. Did the rest of the band recognize that that was the yeah. thing? Yeah. And then, then we got, then we heard people were coming to see us, labels, we made a demo, Never sent it to anybody. The demo never went anywhere. Like, people just started hearing about us. And I think because we were a girl band, you know, and I have to say, at the time, I was a good, I'm a good performer, you know. So I, I did do a good job fronting a band. And then then we got signed, and then we, you know, got signed to Interscope Records. I wanted to leave What's Up off because I knew what was going to happen. I knew we would be a one-hit wonder, you know, like Why we, do you know that? I just knew I mean it. now we understand a little bit of it, but how do you have that instinct I before I just because the song was so superior than all the other songs. Uh. It was not Why were the it, other songs not at the same level as that? It's well, just it's, a, not about it's just that. lightning. It's not like that. I mean, everybody knows that. I mean, we had great album tracks. Yeah. There was good album tracks on there. Like, there was a song called well, Spaceman that I thought was a really great song. There was a song that I wrote called Drifting that, to me, to this day, is just such a stunning, beautiful song. I don't think it was better than What's Up, but What's Up just had all the ingredients, you know? And By the um, way, everyone knows that anyone who is at that era who would have bought What's Up... Unlike now, if if that came out, that would be the only song people knew. But we all had Columbia House, and we had all these things, right. and you'd order 10 albums. Yeah. So, of course, you'd order that song. And if you order that song, you order the other 9, 10 songs. Well, yeah, because it came with an album. Because it came with an album. So, I think on in a weird sort of way, that was an era where at least if you were going to have you know one hit, it came with nine other songs. Now, if no. you have one hit, it may only come with that one hit. Yeah, well, like that's very, a, very true. But that's not what we're talking about today. I yeah. mean, right now, we're talking about 1990s. True. <clears throat> um, and so I was knew... Was it Jimmy Iovine? Yeah. Was that, so, well, yeah. Tom Wally was our a oh, cool, guy, yeah. and Jimmy was, you know, obviously Jimmy. But I wanted to leave it off for that reason, and, you know, Tom was like, everybody, like, the whole band were like, why would we do that? And I said, because it's going to get the most attention. It's a classic song. It's going to be equally as good for the next record. Why don't we establish who we are first? No one wanted to listen to me. And that's pretty much what happened. It's like, what's up blew up. They were happy with that. They weren't going to push any other single. Nobody cared about any other single. It was so over the top big, which I'm so grateful. But that song was going to be big with Four Non Blondes or without them, you know? So that's what I'm saying. Four Non Blondes, in a weird way, kind of took me off path because I would have been on a completely... I would have made a completely different record. I would have been more cooler, 
you know, I wouldn't have done this type of record. And 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 it doesn't matter. That's I don't have um, any uh, regret whatsoever. I'm just. It's the only what if I have. Sometimes I go, what if I didn't join that band for the What's Up would have been a hit. Would it have? I would have been a star, but I would have been a different artist. I want. The only place that I think it would have changed, I think I would, st- I would have still remained an artist. I wouldn't have jumped ship and became a producer songwriter. That's that to me is the difference. I would do, have still been an artist. Do you think that artist. that then makes the songs later that become so big that those would have been Linda Perry songs and not other artists? Is that sort of the yeah. thought process? Well, that- no. I mean, whatever. I don't. Again, I don't. I'm not about changing. I'm just in fantasy right now. Yeah. I'm only speaking from fantasy. I love my career. I love my life. You talked about we brought up Four Non Blondes and that song, and that's where I went. You you, know? s- you spent the rest of that decade. I mean, you start writing some for other people, but you're still releasing albums as a solo artist after Four Non Blondes, right? So kind of. You know, again, I was put in a really you know, difficult situation because when we started making the second album, I started in a very different place. I was, I was in Dark Side of the Moon. You know, I was in Sid Barrett world, you know, where, and that is the true me. True me is not, like, the funny part is I'm not a, I'm not a hit pop songwriter. You know, I'm not, you know, it's, it's shocking I'm very weird. Like, I love more, you know, I love getting in different tones and singing, you know, like, you know, like I'm a weirdo. And that's where I like to sit. And um, so I laugh about it all the time when, if there's a song that, you know, you know, well, actually haven't had a big hit in a while. But when those happen, it's it's funny. Um, But so... When I was working on the the second record, I was true. Linda was coming to life. I was like, oh, identifying more about who I was, what I wanted to sing about. I was getting more open about, um, you know, my you know my emotions. Trying to discover more of you know what was in front of me, blind, you know, and it was more of a personal journey I was on. You know, the band was. They sure. didn't write songs. They're fucking, they're happy. They're in a huge band, you know. So every time I'd bring a song, they would like go, well, that doesn't sound like us. And I would be severely disappointed. Like I would be hurt, you know, like it, would, it was crushing. And then I'd go write another one. Well, it's pretty, but that doesn't sound like us, you know. And then I started. Then the the the, the crush would stir, start stirring around into. I'd start getting angry, and then I'd go plop out some stupid fucking song in five minutes. Blah 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 blah. Okay, what do you think about this? We fucking love that, and I'm like, fuck you, fuck you guys. You know this is fucking shit, and you guys are turning this body of beautiful work down. And then you're accepting this. And then the record label was happy with that. So we made a whole second record that was filled with shit, you know, in my ears, in my mind. But Interscope was super happy with it. You know, I guess it had shit hits on there. So in the middle of it, 
I just stopped <laughs> and we were taking a break and I went to Tom Wally and I said, I can't, I'm sorry, please forgive me, but I cannot do a round of that. I will find you a singer. I will help form her. I will do whatever you guys need. You can have the songs. I don't even want them. Take them. They're yours. But I cannot be in this band. And he literally said, well, what kind of album do you want to make? I said, I want to I want to sit down with a bottle of wine. I want to smoke my cigarettes. And I want to just play. And I want to discover the album as it, as it unfolds while I'm recording it. And he looked at me and he's like, do you have any kind of reference? I'm like, yeah, Dark Side of the Moon. I want to make a record that dark. Yeah. I'm not going to make Dark Side of the Moon, but something that has that feeling that takes you on a journey. And I'm going to sit with my ball of wine and my fucking cigarette. And I'm going to record this album just like that on the fly, you know? And he was like, okay, we'll go make it. And I'm like, great. And then he dropped the band. And I was like, that's not what I wanted you to do. And it was, it was heartbreaking to me because I wanted them to drop me. You know, anyways, it's terrible. So I go do that with Bill Bottrell. So that's in flight. That record was pretty much an ad lib. And I just sat with my ball of wine. And sometimes the guys were there and sometimes they weren't. And I would just push record and just start making up the words. And there's like this song called Life in a Bottle that I just, it just came because I was a, I was a drunk, you know, <clears throat> I did a lot of drugs and I drank a lot and I just was so content being unhappy and miserable and that's the kind of record I made. But the record was beautiful to me because it, it was this journey. It was like this drunk, you know, that started finding other people that were like them because still, mind you, I'm operating from the point of view that no one can get me because I'm, I don't belong here. I'm from a different time, man, you know? How much after that that come that album comes out in ninety six ish, and it pretty much got shelved because Jimmy didn't like that I didn't call it Four Non Blondes. He wanted me to call that album Four Non Blondes, and I'm like, that is not. <laughs> yeah. I'm like one. I hate that name. Two. Why would I do that, Jimmy? And I think Jimmy got upset. I'm just one non blonde. Yeah, I and <laughs> I've heard that if you don't do what Jimmy wants, and I love Jimmy, but. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The way I think he's amazing. But I think maybe what happened is they felt 
we don't need to support this, and they shelved the record. And it really was devastating because I believe still to date that is some of the best songs. Why don't you re-release it? You know, it's because it's I I have so many better songs to write. You yeah, know? like um, it was a, it's a great album, and I do love the body of work, and I think it's so beautiful, and I'm so proud of it. Is um, it out? Yeah, it's called In Flight, and um, and it's a a record you have to listen to. You what know? What do you do in the next? Between that and Misunderstood Pink's album coming out, uh, uh, what happens? What's the Linda Perry story between 1996 and 2001? Seems well, like music as a whole was starting to change a lot at that point because there was all the influx of boy bands and, and radio changed and all these different things. And it seems like there's a... What happens in that gap between that and then writing for other people and having this slew of success? Well, after I toured in flight, so it came out in 96, and I, I think I toured it for a year, even though I'd show up and nobody would even know. You know, the records weren't in the stores or anything. So I just did it. It was, it was um, really fun to play that record. I felt so at peace, so I, I was fine. Regardless of the size of the audience and all that, it's amazing how, as, and I think a lot of the people who listen to this have this vision that quantity of people in a, in a venue is somehow whether or not it's enjoyable to perform. And, and it's not, it doesn't work that way. It's if you love what you perform, you can perform in front of 10 people and it's... Oh, yeah. Well, I was stressed out all the time in Four Non Blondes. I lost my voice all the time and we were only doing like a 40-minute set and I was just going yeah. cuckoo over there. And But on In Flight, I was doing a two-hour set because half of my set was the album. The other half, I just made up songs on the bus and we'd go and play them. You know, and, and I'd call that band Sally Furberger and the Muff Divers, or you know, I would just make up new names and people. These are just instrumentalists like, <laughs> that you toured with must have been oh, amazing. They were, they were phenomenal because for them to just for you to say, phenomenal. okay, here's the new song, play it. Phenomenal yeah, players, that's cool. and that's why. And then we would party all the time yeah. afterwards. It was so much fun doing that record and, and performing it. But right after that, then I went and did, and then I I was in San Francisco, and then one day on my way to. Los Angeles, I was driving. I never listen to music when I drive or in the car. And I was making this trip and I just started having this argument with myself about, all right, you're going to move to LA. And I'm, like, I'm not fucking moving to LA. Yeah, you're going to move to LA. I'm not moving to LA. You're moving to LA. I'm not moving to LA. There's no fucking way I'm moving to LA. So I get to LA and I show up at my friend's <laughs> house and, um, and he's all, and I'm all, you know, I look like I'm in a battle. And he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I'm fucking moving to L.A. And he's like, what? When did you decide that? I'm like, on the way here. I've, and he's like, why are you so angry about it? I'm like, because I don't want to move to L.A., but my fucking gut is telling me to move to L.A. And this is not, I'm not happy about this. And he's like, then don't do it. He's like, Brian. And I said, Brian, you don't understand. If my gut is telling me I have to do it, I have no choice. And he started laughing so I literally call my manager. I fire her, you know, and I'm like, I'm moving to L.A. You're fired. Put my house up, you know, and she was like, what? And I'm like, just please, can you do this for me? Put the house up. 
you're fired. I'm moving to L.A. And um, I go back. I pack up all my shit, and I move to L.A., and I find a house and everything. And and so I, I made this album called After Hours, and that was just for fun. And it was a cool record. I thought it was actually a fun kind of just whatever. It I don't even I don't even know where it is. You can't get it anywhere. I have no idea. But I played that to Interscope, and I'm now mind you, I'm still on Interscope this whole time. So we're like in '97, I think it's '97, and um, maybe the tail end of '97. And Tom, I'm playing him this record. He's like, "Yeah, well, I'd like to hear you do some more stuff." And so I I went into his office and I said, "Listen." I need you to let me go. And I still had five more records with them. I said, I need you to let me go. He's like, I can't let you go. And I'm like, listen, Tom, I need you to let me go. You guys don't know what to do with me. I don't know what to do with you. And even if I had What's Up Part 2 in my pocket right now, I would never give it to you. He's like, why? I go, because I don't want to. Do you understand? I want you to let me go. And he's like, well... I can't do that, you know? And I said, listen, here's the thing. What is it going, What? how are you going to feel when um, when your secretary calls you and tells you, hey, did you hear it? And you're going to go, did I hear what? And she's going to say that Linda Perry committed suicide and left a note naming you as the responsibility of why she did that. And he just like looked at me and uh, three weeks later, he and I said, Tom, I'm super unhappy. Let me go. Let me go, please. And then it was two or three weeks later, I remember being in the shower and I get a call. And I just grabbed it for some reason. I just jumped out of the shower because I knew something. And he's like, okay, you're, you're free. And I said, with no price over my head. And he's like, with no price over your head. And I'm like, I will always think and say wonderful things about you. And I do. I, I can't believe he did that for me. And then, then life changed for me. Like then I was like free, you know. Interscope had no idea what to do with me. I didn't know what to do for them. I was too weird and too, you know, like we're talking about a time where it was very pop and girls were girls and boys were boys and or gay boys acting straight you know and you know and it was a very yeah. it was not my time but as soon as i got out of that i think it was i don't know yeah it was 2000 something to that effect and then i'm like okay i'm going to get out of this retro thing cuz i was always on tape and retro gear never had a anything that was like a synthesizer programmer nothing and so i i called up my friend i'm saying hey what's everybody using right now what's that sound that's on the radio right now and he's like oh it's like literally three things a triton huh. you know um an mpc and um a roland expansion uh rack you know and i'm all okay i go and then what are they recording into and he's like, well, and then still, I think Pro Tools still wasn't at its full. Um, either D88 or Pro Tools. Huh. I'm like, all right. So I went and got it. I went and got all that. And I set, set it up all on my own in a room of mine. And the very first thing that showed up was, okay, what's this MPC thing? I loaded up some sounds. Okay, figured it out. You know, and then I'm all, okay. 
And I grabbed some shakers. I'm all, you know, added some stuff. And then I'm like, okay, what is Triton? What does this thing do? And there's like, you know, oh, oh, that's is that a clav? Whatever. You know, and then there's horns in the expansion. And then I'm like, I didn't find a bass sound that I like, so I just grabbed real bass and went boom, 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 boom. And then I'm all, I, this needs wah, you know, so I pick up my guitar and I'm all, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, here's the track. What else can I put on here? Oh, let me do some vocals. So I pick up a bullet microphone, uh, you know, harmonica microphone and I'm all, I'm going to think of every cliche I can think of. And I'm all, I'm coming up, so you better get this party started. And then just pull, you know, just start making up all these words. And then I, that's how that song showed up. And I was just so open to the experience of just exploring what this new gadgets do. And um, I called up my manager at the time, and I got a new manager, and I play her the song over the, the phone. And she's like, What's that? I go, I just fucking wrote a dance hit. We got to find somebody to do this because God knows I can't do this. And then I also had a showcase coming up because it was like a couple, I feel like it was a few <clears throat> years and or a couple of years. So with Doug Morris, Clive Davis, I was going to do this whole showcase, a Linda Perry show. Everybody was really excited. Oh, Linda Perry wants to come back? Great. Right on. And so I was going to play all these songs, you know, that I had written. But when that happened... I was like, hmm, what is happening here? This is, the, I'm not supposed to do this. And I kept on like having like, you know, uh, I don't know. And it was in two months this showcase was going to happen. And then out of nowhere, some crazy girl calls. I get this message on the phone and it's Alicia saying, I want to work with you. Is this Linda Perry that wrote Dear Mr. President? And I on the TV, I'm like, who the fuck is Pink? And then I see a video with this girl, yeah. pink hair, singing Ching Ching and all that. And I'm like, I call her back and I'm like, I think you got the wrong Linda Perry. And she's all, is this Linda Perry that wrote, you know, what's up and dear Mr. President? I'm all, yeah. And she's like, you're the right person. So I go meet with her. She just wants me. Now, she just, all she wants is for me to sing on a song with her, on one of her songs, or write a song. You know, but something as little as that as just singing. So I come back from that meeting and I tell my manager, I'm like, cancel the showcase. And she's like, what? I've spent months putting this together. People are like, you said you wanted to get another deal and go back. I'm like, no, there's something about this girl. And she's like, well, what does she want? I'm like, she didn't want me to sing on her album. She's like, you want me to cancel a meeting with a showcase with Doug Morris, Clive Davis and blah, blah, blah over a girl wanting you to sing on her album. I'm like, yeah, you're going to have to trust me on this. I'm supposed to do this. And this is my, my, my destiny. Like, this is it. I don't want to fucking go be on a label. Fuck that. I did that. Who am I kidding? But this, there's something daring and risky, and I like it. There's something here. So I did it, and then that was the beginning of that. I love her. She's fantastic. Yeah. Um, the next year, Beautiful comes out, and I feel like that's not. I mean, if the if playing around with a bunch of synths and whatnot is is sort of what 
created that pink album. I feel like Beautiful is the exact opposite where that must have been. Mm-hmm. It, at least in my head, my, my uh, romantic version of it is that you're sitting down and you're really emoting while you're writing that. Is that the case? I, oh, what yeah. is No, no, that, that song I wrote for myself and, and I actually even considered after I wrote it, like, oh, this is, I could show back up in, in, as an artist with this song. It's yeah. such a great, it's, you know, such, what a wonderful song. But the, the, when I was writing it, it's like literally, you know, sitting at the piano and again, and you know, the way I write, I don't know about you guys, I, it just, I just pick up the instrument and it just shows up. Like I don't have, I just make up words. Um, the melody, the music, everything comes at the same time. Um, so I just started sitting there and the the vibe showed up and then I started singing, you know, every day is so wonderful. And, you know, I'm darker, you know, obviously. And, and you know, and then when I went into, you know, I am beautiful, I, I just stopped. It's like I pulled the brakes off and I was like, I'm <sighs> I don't think that, you know, I didn't get it. I didn't get the song, you know, and, you know, I'm like, I am beautiful. Like, I don't think that at all. In fact, you know, it's opposite. I, 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 and then I started swaying away from the song and then I came back to it and I said, okay, just find out what, what the message is. Just let it go. Don't, don't try to judge it. Don't try to control it. Even if you don't believe you're beautiful, just play the song just write it so I went back and I'm I am beautiful no matter what you think words can you know whatever so the whole song is done and I'm like you know and I had my studio in there so I recorded it and I'm like you know this is a really great song okay maybe I don't believe that the message but it's still a great song so I'll turn it into I'm beautiful, you are beautiful, we are beautiful. That way it takes the pressure off of me saying I'm beautiful, you know, mm. whatever. So then I see Christina at a club, and which I never go to, and she's sitting there by herself, and I walk up to her, and I'm like, hey, um, I heard you're working on an album. And I wasn't trying to get on the album at all. I was just had heard a rumor that she was working on an album. And I said, you know, it would be really great if you actually uh, used your depression to, to on this record and your darkness. Like, you're obviously a dark, depressed girl. And a lot of people know that you can sing, but nobody really knows that you actually feel what you're singing. So you might want to interpret that into this album. And I walked away and... No idea what reaction she had. And then a friend of mine was like, what did you just say to Christina? And I'm all, why? And he's like, because her, she's watching you walk off and her mouth is open. And, I'm, and then I told him what I said. And he's like, oh my God, you did not just say that to Christina Aguilera. I'm like, I did. What's the big deal? You know, a week later, I get a phone call that she wants to come in and work with me. And so she comes to my house and... um. She's like, will you play something? And she's all by herself because I said, I don't, first of all, no managers, no posses. I don't fucking roll that way. You come by yourself and that's that. That's the deal with me always. And um, so she came and she was really nervous and she said, can you play me a song? And I'm like, all right, whatever. And I 
had just written beautiful. So I start playing her that and I just hear her little feet get closer and closer and closer <laughs> to the piano. And she's at the end of it. It's like, you know, can you demo that down for me and give me the lyrics? And I'm like, why? She's like, because I want to, I want that song for my album. I'm like, yeah, no, what? No, you can't have this song. You're a hot chick. You know, what do you know about, you know, like you can't sing this. Like people are going to think you're crazy. And then after she went away, I was like, then the song became clear to me. And then it hit me. And then I had her come back and I said, let's hear you sing the song first. So she bring, she's like, can I please bring a friend? I'm so uncomfortable. Yes. Let her bring a person. And it's like a room like this. And it's, it's like sitting there and she's doing the vocals right here. And she's like, can you lower lights? I lower the lights. I already recorded the piano for her. I give her the words. And I hear the pages turn. The song starts. You know, the, the click tracked. Don't look at me. To her friend, she says. And then right then and there, I knew the song was for her because how she said, I knew, one, I was keeping that, and two, the vulnerability in her voice by saying that to her friend, like, don't look at me while I'm singing this because I'm feeling really vulnerable right now and insecure. I knew she was the perfect messenger for this song. I mean, I was too on the nose, you know? You, that's, you now at this point have... Three, you know, when I said in the beginning, you know, you have a catalog of evergreens. I think there are a lot of people of hits. There aren't a lot of people of the kind of hits that people keep playing. And at this point, you now have three different artists, and one including yourself, who've has sung these incredible songs that you've written. Did you feel, especially after Pink and Christina, one year after? each other did you feel kind of invincible at this point like did any of your personality that was darker the decade before or even the decade before that was any of that adjusting because your message wasn't just coming out to the people in a room now it's worldwide success like these songs were just everywhere how does that affect you as a songwriter and as a human Honestly, I don't get affected by it whatsoever. It's, um, I have no awards sitting on my mantle. I have no records hanging on my wall. Why not? It's not important. That doesn't do anything for me. Uh-huh. Um, I am whatever I did today. I always have been like that. I don't care. You know, I have to actually, people have to remind me constantly, like, who I am, you know, because I like, you know, I'm just Linda Perry and I'm having, I have such high expectations of where I want to be and what I want to achieve and, you know, how I want to accomplish that, that I don't get held down by accolades and false, you know, perception because that's all that stuff is. I appreciate myself and how my work ethic is and I really love that I do you know I'm just a regular person with you know regular emotions that are just amped at a different level than most people 
Um, I'm very in touch with myself. I like that's why I can sit here right now. <clears throat> you can record me, and within 15 minutes, I could give you probably four to five really great. Actually, in within 20 minutes, I'll give you five great ideas from start to finish with words, with melody, with arrangement, as if I've written them today or yesterday or whatever. Um, I'm really tapped in creatively, and that to me makes me exceptional to myself. Um, to you, I don't really care, you know, what you think of me, and I think that's part of why I am unique because... Mm. At the end of the day, I could really give a shit about it all. All I really care about is how it's affecting me in my life and are my emotions being dealt with on this journey? And if can I be a good person on my way? Yeah. You know, I just want to be a giving person. I want to be of service. I want to help you guys however I can. If you ask me a favor, I'm like the best person to give hmm. a favor. Like I, I barely turn anybody down. Um, to me, writing is a part of my journey, but it's not the full thing. Like all of this, the people you meet, my son, how I evolve, you know, as a human being and how my songs can translate. Like I am writing way better right now. Like my my writing is, it's clear, it's more focused because I'm getting clear. I'm getting more focused. I'm not more happy today than I was 30 years ago at all. I'm just, I have adapted to who I am, you know. One thing you said when you first walked in was that you're starting to say yes to things even if you don't know what they are. And, and you know, when you look at your whole discography, you have a lot of artists really early in their career, you know, Pink or Christina Aguilera or Ariana Grande or Miley or uh, I mean the whole list. It's so many people where it's their the beginning of their career. Plus they keep coming back to you. It seems like you've always said yes to things that are, you know, that are unknown. These are unknown artists. A lot of times when you work with them, like that, that takes a lot of risk for somebody who could probably write with anybody. Why do you like taking a risk on un unknown people? Um. Well, I don't consider Pink at the time unknown. I guess that's true. She had had it. I mean, I think that um, for me, I probably believe that is more true to what I'm doing right now. Where, so, you know, I think that's really important for listeners to understand that. You know, that's why I don't appreciate the awards because I think it really gives false a false illusion of someone's accomplishments. Mm -hmm. um, I've written tons of really great songs. I, in fact, I can honestly say without ego, I've never written a bad song. Now, whether it gets out in the world, that's a different story. That's beyond my control. Totally. You know, I've written huge hits for people that all of a sudden decided that they wanted to go be a preacher I've written incredible, worked on incredible albums with somebody that I didn't know had a drug problem and had to go into rehab, 
right after the record and couldn't promote it, and therefore they got dropped. I've written songs that they don't still understand are hits. I have songs that are such big fucking songs that the person that I gave it to just couldn't hear it. Or the label, it was so different. Like, that's what I love about my songwriting. I never look at what you're doing. I don't care what you're doing. I'll appreciate and respect, but I don't really try to emulate and I am not trying to, again, I'm not looking for hits. I'm just trying to do what I do, and I stay over here in my place where I know what I'm best at. I like to go have fun and experiment with songs. And again, those experiments turn into, because to, to go back to what's up, let's say, what's up, um, beautiful, get the party started, what you waiting for, superwoman, these are... Check the the song I have with Dolly that's up for a Grammy, you know, Girl in the Movies. Find me the through line. What to put all those songs together and tell me if that's written by the same person. It's not. It's not written by the same person at all. Because if I were writing songs, they would all sound fucking like Tom Waits and it would be <laughs> dark and depressing. Yeah. If Linda was writing these songs. But Linda has nothing to do with the collaborations. Linda is, like, beautiful, you know, but it's like I get these, like, the other day I wrote a song for, um, uh, not the other day, but it was a while ago, for Portugal the Man. I haven't met these guys. But I was thinking about them, and I was like, oh, I like those guys. And then all of a sudden a song just shows up. I, I think about, you know... Um, Alicia Keys, a song just shows up. Mm -hmm. Like I have some weird portal, some funnel, something is coming, a channel that yeah. happens when I'm writing. I'm not writing for me. I'm writing for something else is going on. And then sometimes, like I've I wrote a song for this girl, Lori um, Jean Anderson, fucking amazing artist but I don't know if she's going to succeed because it's not you can see in her DNA that she might not be a star I've written a lot of great songs for people who are not stars you know and you guys know that part yeah. if you're not a fucking star I'm sorry you're not going anywhere it doesn't matter what you get mm. a star you know whether it's these pop stars that are celebrities you can see where they're going to time out. You know, you can see. They're going to tap out right about there. <laughs> so those are the songs that they sing. Are these legacy artists? Are you writing legacy songs? Are you writing songs right now that are going to be around 20 years from now that are going to be in the Songwriter Hall of Fame? Are we working with artists that are going to be nominated into the, the um, Hall of Fame? Are we writing with people right now in this time that there's going to be an incredible biopic about them? Are we? No, we're not. We're not. Rarely. There's probably a handful, but not a lot of the time. You know, but it's like, so I'm saying that that's how you gauge. You know where people are going to tap out and you know the ones that are going to last. You know, Rihanna, yes. Yeah. Totally. You know, I'm not aware of um, the guy, the country guy. Thomas so Rath? Yeah, I don't. I don't yeah, know he's big. 
Yeah, I'm sure he is. He sells out a lot of arenas. I'm sure he is. I don't, I'm just saying I don't know. That's why I can't comment on him. But there's a lot of people that sell out arenas that won't be. No, you know? that's true. So that's true. I, to me, that again, numbers don't mean anything to me because sure. one thing that people have to remember is that just because you have a million followers, does and, and for some reason, um, labels really commit to these tweets and these Instagram follows and all this, and less on, like a million followers does not equal a million dollars. A million fans coming to your show yes. equals millions of dollars. Yes. But for some reason, that part is being very neglected. Absolutely. You know, and but I think it goes back to what you stated early on is people are buying songs right now. Yeah. There is not enough material to go out and play live. So that's why there's a lot of artists that are dropping song, 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 hoping by the end of the year they may be able to go on tour because they may have enough songs to actually fucking take on the road. Yeah. Uh, one more question before I do our last segment. But my my question is, you're, I, this is a it's a shocking statistic that you're the only female to be nominated for producer of the year in the last sixteen years. You know. Why? And I, you know, I think we all have our opinions about the Grammys, but why is it that so few women get the opportunity or take the opportunity? What is it that separates? I, I guess I know what separates you from all producers, but my question is why? How, how come the industry hasn't accepted more women in a producer role? Um, that's a very good question. I think that's the you know, the golden ticket that everybody's trying to figure out. But first of all, there's so many layers to that. One, I'm super disappointed in the Grammys in the Academy this year. I'm an active member of the Recording Academy. And I'm I'm I can say hands down that I'm shocked that we are again here where we are, where Cheryl Crow should have been nominated. Brandy, um, Brandy um, Carlisle should have been nominated. Beyonce, Alicia Keys, um, St. Vincent, um, FK Twigs, um, all should have been yeah. nominated. Yeah. No, that was a no-brainer. In fact, yeah. I think Rolling Stone even said it in a thing like, "Oh, these are the people that are going to be up," and and me, you know. These are, uh, there's going to be a big competition this year in women. Like, I think it was Rolling Stone or Variety or Billboard, mm. one of those. And to come to where we are now, like, oh, we're back to the popular kids. And listen, I like Phineas. I think he's very talented. But I was snubbed for Pink's album because they told me I didn't have enough under my belt, enough credits under my mm. belt. But Phineas, this is his first album too. Yeah. And so how is, mind you, again, love this guy. He's just in this position right now that I have to use as an example because it's ex I, went, I was in the same exact position. First album I came out with, I produced stuff for Four Non Blondes. I did things, but this was my first major album. Sold 10 million records, massive hit, Get the Party Started, was globally all over the fucking world. You know, and this record that I co that I produced the bulk of, you know, why didn't I get a Grammy nomination producer of the year for that? It was very inventive. That record was it changed the scope of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Extremely creative, right? 
very, very different in During the Times. I was really a producer because I took a girl that sang about bling bling and ching ching that was a white girl with pink hair that was doing hmm. R&B music and I turned her into what she is now. You know, I helped her find that. So I was an incredible producer. Yeah. I did that. That's what producers are supposed to do. We're supposed to help yeah. artists go to another level, right? So Phineas, in the same position. Why does he get the nod and I didn't back then? Mm. It is interesting that you know uh, the producer of the year award isn't necessarily either. It's either supposed to be a collection of your work on on multiple artists, which you see in the other producers, exactly, or or it's. Or it's album of the year and you get credit as the producer of album of the year. That was the argument for you. Right. So it is uh, so clearly. It, yeah, so yeah. it's interesting. Again, yeah. I love this guy. I think he's a brilliant, yeah, he's, he's a genius. Yeah. Incredible. So, you know, Phineas, to you, hands, I'm, you yeah. know, totally top respect. But but the fact that Sheryl Crow and all these other people, let's find the, the through line on that. Oh, these people weren't as popular. They didn't have... I mean, because that's what it comes down to. Yeah. It, that's what it comes down to, you know. Well, that's the one thing about the numbers game that it's is It's ridiculous. Is, is and that's different what they than, do on the show. Like yeah. why they try to have eight, uh, yeah. you know, category, eight, you know, slots in the nominations in each category. When that went down, I said... Who are you guys trying to kid? They were trying to say that it was because it was to, you know, be more, have more diversity. And I no. said, fuck you. It's because guys- Ed Sheeran didn't get a nomination. Uh-huh. It's because Ed, it's because Ed Sheeran didn't get a nomination for those two albums. And they added the last three because he probably was sixth or seventh or eighth in the votes. And when artists like that, the argument was that if you could have, if there were more than, it would ensure that that they wouldn't get pushback from well, these major also, artists that the, just barely make that. That's fine example too. Yes, that's part of it. But the other part is the more they can get to win, the higher their ratings yeah, will yeah. be on their TV show. Yeah. And and to me, so I'm I'm severely disappointed in yeah. the recording academy. But here's the other piece. The recording, the members, the board, which I'm on a governor, like we are not the end result. You know, what happens in the room and what ends up actually happening are two different things because we can vote all we want. But then when it goes to the members, it's the members. Now, they have dentists as members. They have people that played guitar on something, but they're really a shoe salesperson as members. They have people that don't even get involved with anything, but of course they're not going to know Cheryl Crow or you know, Twigs or that. So they're going to go. Half the people that vote yeah. are voting by popularity. They're not voting by who's best. They're oh, I know this song, you know. Yeah. So it's the education with the members that they need to get together. Either stream down the members, go through them all, and get rid of the people that shouldn't be there. And mm-hmm. and, and and it it's like a it's a it's a Senate. 
Yeah. You know, these people are guiding the future of the music business. And if we constantly are hit by people who are not listening to songs for how great they are and not how well written they are and how these songs are classic, but they're listening to it because they heard it stream on fucking Spotify a hundred million times, that is just the wrong approach. Absolutely. Therefore, either the Grammys have to go and something else has to come in its place, or they need to actually go through all their members and start educating them and 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 picking people, you know, self-picking them and yeah. not just letting anybody come in because they played harmonica on a fucking song. Six albums ago. You know, yeah. <laughs> 15 years ago. Um, in this next segment, five for five, I'm going to list five things just say the first thing that comes off the top of your head. First one, and some of this is going to be because we didn't go through, you know, the, you, we could sit here for six hours and go through a discography. But first one, Dolly Parton. Most amazing um, specimen, human specimen I've ever She's met. so rad. Operating on <laughs> a whole other level than, I mean, she's not human, I'm convinced. Yeah. Let's do Christina Aguilera. Christina Love. But it's complicated. <laughs> um, let's do Art of Elysium. We didn't really talk about your philanthropy, and being that we you had the event yesterday, let's talk about philanthropy. Let's just say Art of Elysium. Art of Elysium is an incredible organization that brings art to you know um, uh, elderly to terminally ill kids, homeless. I mean, they're they're trying to use the art to heal. They get actors, um, writers, uh, directors, and um, they are beautiful, a beautiful organization. So um, my company, We Are Here, put on this incredible um, benefit for them um, last week where we had um, the remaining members of Nirvana and Beck and St. Hmm. Vincent singing with them. Marilyn Manson, Cheap Trick, L7 was an incredible event. Yeah, Let's go with the album Dark Side of the Man. One of the most beautiful things I've ever heard and still to date. Yeah. And then finally, your son. My son Rhodes is, um, I believe, why I'm so clear and my songs are better and more focused is because I'm so wanting to get in and out of the studio so much quicker (laughs) because I just want to be with him every moment of the day. So I go in there with the intent for the universe to just bless me today with an easy, creative, you know, uh, experience with whatever artist I'm working with so I can just get home to my son. You know, first of all, thank you for doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, It was cool for you to come and be part of this podcast. Can I just say one thing that we completely missed is my company, We Are Here, is I have a a label, a publishing company, and I manage artists now. So why I'm not really in the studio a lot right now is because I manage Natasha Bedingfield. I have my partner, Carrie Brown. Um, We do all these huge events. I have an artist named Jesse Joe Stark, uh, Pete Molinari, um, Willa, my 15-year-old girl, um, and a artist named Francis Lyon, and we have so many great things going on. We do we do these events. 
Um, we did the One Love Malibu and um, the, for the fires that we, in 10 days, got some of the biggest artists to show up. So we're using our space uh, to build community. We're going to start doing um, singer-songwriter showcases for kids so they can come into our, our space, which is in Studio City where we sell records. We have a record store and we work from up above. Um, we're getting together with Manny Mariquin um, and uh, we have a vinyl pressing uh, machine and we're going to put it together with him and and live to vinyl. Um but I'm scoring, so I'm doing a lot of stuff. I have a lot of things happening right now I'm super excited about. and um, But my company, We Are Here, H-E-A-R, is number one priority. We have a big press release that's about to happen. And um, we are doing very, very different what's things. The, what's the press release say? You'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to get the scoop. Um, yeah, I mean, look, this is... We are. Where can people follow? We have. Um, we are here um, on Instagram and Twitter and Linda Perry, real Linda Perry. Um, and uh, but again, and it's Wa. I think it, on Instagram is it Wa? It's um, Wa Music. And um, but yeah, we have people come down. People come to our store all the time. It's right there in, stu- in Studio City on Ventura Boulevard, right next to Arts Deli. That's what, that's yeah. where we live. And um, well, yeah, it's right there. So come the by. Right we have there. people come by all the time. Um, we do like little parties there. We do pop-ups and um, we're fixing our space right now because one of the things to me that's extremely important and why going back to the yes, I do a lot of panels. I talk to a lot of kids. I do a lot of production panels, engineering, because I engineer. I, you know, I'm not just telling people what to do. I actually know what I'm doing and I engineer not from Pro Tools. I actually have microphones and outboard gear and you know, move microphones around and, and do the whole thing. And I think it's important for people to understand, understanding what they are doing across the board, you know, like just don't follow the, you know, you, if you're going to write a song, follow the song completely. And, um, and I, uh, we are here, we're really trying to focus on kids and giving them a place where they can get the right information and not just focus on, you know, pretty soon hits aren't going to mean anything. The way we're going, everything is going to flatline to be exactly the same way, you know? And so we need to get quality happening back. We need to bring back the album. If we don't bring back the album... The quality of music and and just the 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 art of music it will just be gone. It'll just be gone. We can't survive on a single driven market anymore. Yeah. You know because that's not building anything. It's not sustaining anything. Yeah. It's not building artists. It's not providing longevity. So my number one thing that I always tell kids is like forget what everybody else is doing and stay true because that's where Nirvana came from. That's where Billie Eilish came from. That's where Guns N' Roses showed up. That's where Carol King said "fuck you" to the 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 you know the industry. Made her own album. Her first album sounds like a greatest hits album. So we have to say we have to go against the establishment and what you believe is what people want. And radio is going to be non-existent. You know, I mean it. It already is to a point, you know, it's like the, it's not pushing anything, you know, and streaming. Yeah, that is where we're at. But why don't we focus on things that, you know, make your own playlist by I got an idea. It's called an album. 
Yeah. You know, stop putting together all these random playlists and make an album that expresses everything that you want this playlist to express. Yeah. So why don't we do that as artists? If you want a playlist wanna, and you want a country moment, fucking write a country song then. And then that will be number two on the playlist. You want an R&B moment, write an R&B song. Like we have to gain control of what we're putting out there and people are just getting too much. They're, they're freely putting way too much information out there that shouldn't be out there. Yeah, and also, you know... And Sorry, I just no, went no, on no, a whole tangent. I love it. Look, the, I was going to say before that it, it takes people to show how being unique is going to be... That that is the path. So many people are asking who listen to this want to know how do they get in the business? How do they how do they get songs heard? You know, what does it take? And it takes a unique point of view. It takes perseverance, and it takes bleeding on records. It takes trying to create something that is vulnerable and difficult and all the things that whether it's picking up new instruments and being I don't know how did these work and starting and I'm going to write a bunch of clichés and it working but it's still testing yourself. It's whether it's I don't know if I can say this because I don't know if this, I can you you should be asking that question. You should I gotta be go. trying. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> Do it. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of this. Yeah, of course. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of And the Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.